people we were out there to visit made us drive to the closest In-N-Out Burger, which was, it was like a 25, 30-mile trip. It was like, nope, we're going. You know what I mean? And it was amazing. And the menu's not that big. You know what I mean? And uh, when you look at the place from the outside, it's clean and it's bright, but it's like, okay, I don't know. I don't get it. But you're really impressed. It's a, it's a great customer service interaction. The food is excellent. And you come away from it kind of understanding all this sort of buzz that surrounds it. It's, it's, it's interesting. But it's another one of those things that you really can't read about. You have to experience it live, you know? Right. And when you look at those moments, it's, it's the granularity of each touch point that makes them and all the best companies in the world great. Like, for an example, when you go in and you drive up to the menu, Back in 1957 or so, when they were formed, they realized that at the time, the acoustics really weren't that great. A lot of drive through restaurants have never fixed that. You know, they have these speakers the size of a half dollar. And so you have this muffled dialogue between the person you order. It seems like no big deal, right? But they realized that was a problem. If you look at pictures of the original In-N-Out Burger, they had megaphones, literally, as the way in which you communicated back and forth. So you had full, crisp full duplex dialogue that was good. Orders didn't get mixed up and you weren't yelling into the thing, right? Something as simple as that. And then, you know, you'd mentioned their menu wasn't very big, but the truth of the matter is there's hundreds of things on their menu. In-N-Out Burger has a secret menu and even a super secret menu. Right. And these super menus are part of a community of In-N-Out Burger lovers mm-hmm. who have created their own language. Right. And In-N-Out Burger has embraced this new language of different types of, of things, and, and they feel part of the secret order of burgerdom. Right. And even as you drive through, you see this massive pane glass window. And it's not there for stakeholders to be able to look out the window. It's there for you to see the theater of cleanliness, and you actually probably observe them making fresh French fries in the window. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was just, it was theater. You know what I mean? It was it was great stuff, and everybody in the place was having a good time. I mean, all walks of life, a lot of, a lot of college kids, you know, young and old. It was exceptional, I, I have to say. Let me ask you a question. Somebody comes to Nicholas Webb, and they say, yeah, you know, I think I want to improve my customer experience, but I sell, I don't know, ice cube trays. You know what I mean? It's a real non-glamorous, it's what it is. What do you say to somebody or to a company that kind of understands they need to sort of take a look at this thing, but it really sort of in the dark about all the other components that surround what a customer experience is? Right, so rather they work with me or do this on their own, there's sort of a linear process that they really should follow. The first process they should follow is sort of a customer experience readiness assessment. I mean, do you really understand the customers you serve? Now, one thing that I think is a hallmark in my book is that I don't look at demography. I don't look at traditional market segmentation. The only thing I care about is what people hate and what people love. And I break customers into personas based on what they hate and what they love. For an example, there's a burrito place here in the town that I live in that makes good burritos. And my wife goes there because she likes good burritos more than she hates standing in line. But I'm a persona type that hates standing in line more than I like good burritos. Sure. So if they were a client of mine, I would say that you need either shorter lines or better burritos. But if you want to follow the zen of customer experience, you do both. You have yeah. a shorter line and you make better burritos. When you take a look at ice cube trays, there's an integrated value there. And so it's not necessarily just inventing the way in which you transact the ice cube tray. 
It might be that there are new channel innovations that deliver more convenient and more interesting ways in which you get them there. Maybe when you sell your ice cube trays, they come gift-wrapped. You find interesting and clever ways to provide differentiated experiences. And it's very hard to find where that's not the case. So you start with the readiness assessment. You identify where the gaps are in terms of information gaps, resource gaps, technology gaps. And then from there, you build a customer experience roadmap and then you deploy that with measurements. And that's really the, the formal way to do it right. Nick, how has the internet interactive digital type of economy we're in now and the mobile economy, people with smartphones, changed or altered what we now know as customer experience? I think the entire ecosystem has changed. The best way to describe it, it is total digital ubiquity. And when you have total digital ubiquity, you have disruptive innovators who are trying to find ways to leverage that digital ubiquity. So when we think about customer experience, we're not just going to invent new technologies.